Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I am your host, Swim Kareem, and so glad to have you here on a pretty wild day in my personal life. I was getting ready to sit down. I was going to do a nice little recording of the podcast. I said, you know what? The, the, the Chronicle of Philanthropy, they just came out with the top 50 donors of America. This is a prime topic for us to get into. And I said, you know, I, I can't find my AirPods. So I, I'm searching around my house. I'm looking, tearing up my house because when you have AirPods and you have it in like your little case, it's easy to kind of lose even with your cover. And I couldn't find it. So I said, you know what? Maybe it's in my car. It's four o'clock. I've been in the house all day. It's a Sunday. So I'm just chilling, relaxing, you know, a day of rest, enjoying myself. But we still like to work here at the Nonprofit Insider. So I said, you know what? I want to do this recording. I can't find my AirPods. Maybe they're in my car. So I go outside to go to my car. It's raining a little bit here in Albuquerque, which it, you know, we don't get a whole lot of rain, but it's always glorious when we do. I go to the car, I open it up, and my car is ransacked. Glove compartment open. All the things in my glove compartment spread out in my passenger seat. And the glove compartment is just like straight open. I'm looking and I'm like, I think someone jacked me. And it's like at that moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, did I I really leave my AirPods in the car? And someone went in my car and took them. And it's not like someone broke into my gla- like broke glass or my windows or anything like that because I live in a house where I have a drive. Between my sidewalk and the drive is maybe about 25, 30 feet. So in order to even get to my car, you have to step off the sidewalk, walk down my drive, get to the car, and then like mess around with it. And I'm thinking, you know what? I had my I had a jacket in there and I'm thinking I had my AirPods in my jacket, and I think someone took my jacket and they took my AirPods. N- nothing else was taken, except on my car door I have uh, like a little, you know, like a little handle, and in the little handle I have like a just a bunch of chains for if I'm in a parking space and I need to pay to park. But yeah, I think someone ran into my car, took my jacket, and took my AirPods, and I'm like, one, I'm like, I'm in. A, I'm like so bummed because love my AirPods, right? You like to have those when you're having conversations and things like that. When you're doing as much as we're doing these days, but my my, my first thought was someone is probably in a really tough position, going around, going into people's cars because this is not the first time this has happened to me. You know, Albuquerque things, as we like to say around here. Uh, I used to live on the west side of Albuquerque, and funny enough, I lived in an apartment complex at the time brightly lit cars all over and one day i go to my car it's like seven in the morning i'm getting ready to go to work early and sure enough my glove compartment is open everything in my glove compartment spread out but nothing was taken not that i leave a lot of things in my car but i think this time i got caught slipping and someone uh someone took my stuff so just a a reminder 
lock your cars, lock your doors, you know, keep yourself safe and just prevent yourself from being jacked like I just did uh, super wild. But let's get into some things here. So like we do every time here on the Nonprofit Insider, I want to start the day with uh, some recent news that just came out in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. They are kind of like a subscription-based data collecting, very particular type of uh, magazine subscription, if you will. And they're very similar to, if you live in uh, a city, you probably have a business journal if you live to in a city of size. If you live in Miami, you have the South Florida Business Journal. If you live in Phoenix, you have the Phoenix Business Journal, right? It's kind of like that, but more in the philanthropy type of space. And so every year they do the top 50 donors of America and they'll list the the donors in terms of the total amount given, but they'll also list the biggest donations that they have given at any point in time. And they list 50 of them. And I'm gonna put the show, I'm gonna put the link in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. But I had three quick takeaways when looking at this annual report that they do every single year. And so the first thing that really comes to my mind, and, and shout out to Marie Demento and Drew Lindsay, they are the um, they're credited with doing the article on this. So I'm sure them and their team do a lot of research. So shout out to those two. Got to give credit, like I always say, where credit is due. But I had three quick takeaways. And the first takeaway when looking at these 50 um, grant tiers and the amount of money that they give in is that, number one, there's lots of familiar names at the top, but a lot of the gifts that they were given are self-serving. And so when you look at this list, you're going to see the Bill Gates, the Michael Bloombergs. You're going to see the Warren Buffetts, the Sergey Brin. He's the uh, co-founder of Google. You're going to see John and Laura Arnold, the Bezos, uh, Craig Newman. He started Craigslist, of course. Tillman for Tita. You're going to see a lot of familiar names that come up year after year of some big time donors. But one of the things I think that's very interesting when you really look at the gifts that were given is that a lot of time these gifts were given to their own personal foundation. So you have Bill Bill Gates was at the top. He's ranked number one. He gave $5.1 billion in um, donations in 2022. But it was all mostly stock. That was given, drumroll please, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you look at Warren Buffett, he gave $758 million in 2022, with $473 million going to, drumroll please, the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation. And you see this quite a bit. It looks to be about a little more or a little less than a third of the people that were giving money were giving money from their own personal wealth or own personal assets to their respective foundations. John and Laura Arnold, they're, um, John's a former uh, hedge fund manager and his wife is a uh, former lawyer. They gave $617 million in 2022, but 100% of that was to the Laura and John Foundation. So it's just one of those prime examples. And I talked about this on the last episode. Was it last episode? 
yeah, episode four, where I talked about the Russell Wilson Foundation, where a lot of individuals will start foundations because they have a lot of money and they want to be able to give it away in a way that's advantageous for taxes and et cetera. So you see in this list of these top 50 donors, a lot of them are just giving stock options or money to their own foundations. The second thing that really jumped out to me when looking at this particular list is that some areas of giving will always remain the same. A thousand years ago, some of the richest individuals in the world were giving their money to medicine and education and arts. A thousand years from now, you're probably going to see much of the same. And it's, it's, a, it's a really good reminder for me and for many of us in the nonprofit states that a lot of big time donors are going to give to some of the key areas. They're going to give to medicine, hospitals, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer research. They're going to give to education, universities, high school, scholarships. They're going to give to the arts museums, um, social art foundations, etc. And one of the big things I think that really gets lost is that for a lot of folks in a nonprofit space, if you are a big time donor and you're giving away a lot of money, not always, but a lot of times you're going to want some of the glory that comes with it. You've amassed a lot of money in, in business, in tech, in science, in you know, and, and technology, whatever the case may be, and then you're going to give away a lot of money, you want people to know your name. And so as you look at this list of 50 of the top donors in America, you're going to see a lot of big names and a lot of big brands. $35 million to the University of Oxford, $25 million to Purdue University, $50 million to the University of Houston, right? That's a lot of areas of money where you have the ability to give to institutions that are going to prop your name up, put a building maybe. You see $100 million to the Obama Foundation. That was actually done by Airbnb uh, co-founder Brian Chesky. $100 million to that. $65 million to the Marine Corps Foundation. That was from Fred Smith. He's the former FedEx founder. So th these are going to be areas where you have the ability to give yourself a lot of notoriety. You may be giving money that serves as the largest gift in that nonprofit's history, which we see Mackenzie Scott doing a lot of. She wasn't on this list because they don't share those types of data, pieces of information as often. But these are areas where you have the ability to get notoriety. You have the ability to, to have your, like I said, have your name on a building. And it gives you ability to go into the history books, right? If you are, and this is one that I found the most interesting, Jacqueline and Miguel Bezos. I didn't realize this, but Jeff Bezos, his mom and dad, his mom and stepdad, excuse me, were some of the original founders in Amazon. They gave about, I think it was $245,000 to Jeff Bezos. And I didn't realize Jeff Bezos' uh, dad had skipped town. He was, it was very interesting learning a little bit about Jeff Bezos and his history Skipped town when he was young. His mom remarried an individual by the name of Miguel. His last name was Bezos. Changed the dynamic of Jeff Bezos forever and society. 
Jacqueline and Miguel, they gave $710 million to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center out of um, Seattle, Washington, a 10-year donation. So when you have these types of big gifts, you have the ability to be notarized, be talked about, and if major advances are made, you go down in the history books. And then the number three, three observation that I observed when looking at this list were the racial, racial disparities that existed. According to the two authors, Drew and Maria, only one person of color is acknowledged in the top 50 donors. That was by a Taiwanese-American individual by the name of Jin Hasun Hong. I hope I said his last, said his name right. Him and his wife, Lori, did a $50 million donation to Oregon State, to the Oregon State University Foundation. And I just found that so interesting, right? You have, again, 50 individuals, 25 of them are a part of a foundation where it's like... um, organization where it's a husband and wife duo. So you have 25 women that are represented on this list. And yet you only have one individual that's considered to be a non-white individual on this list. So it's in the show notes. So be able to check it out and see uh, some very interesting pieces of data. A few years back, I was looking to like expand myself. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to grow, right? Like like a lot of Americans, like a lot of folks in just the world, you kind of get to a point where you're in a particular space, you kind of get a particular amount of knowledge, whether you're an artist, whether you're a blacksmither, whether you're a, a painter, whether you're a janitor, whatever the case may be, right? It's one thing to be a janitor at your local high school. It's another to be a janitor at the White House, right? There's just levels to everything in life. And there's always ways to improve and grow. And so one of the best, simple, most straightforward way for a lot of folks is just applying to be in a new job, right? And we see this all the time in the nonprofit space. There's more turnover than ever. People are not sticking around with a nonprofit or a company as long as previous generations. And I remember applying to this uh, particular nonprofit and it was in a, a big state. And it, it was like a top five state in terms of like the size of the state is big. And they have a lot of people in this in this state. Y'all can probably figure it out. And <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is right up my alley. It's in a particular field of the nonprofit world that I really enjoy being within. It's in a particular space, great territory, just new city, new opportunities, right? And so I applied for this particular job. And by the end of a, a span of like two months, not only did I not get the job, but I uh, had to do seven different interviews. And it really il- illustrated so much of some of the ups and the downs and the turns and the curves and the whiplash that can come with applying for a job in the nonprofit space. And I remember I had to apply, when I applied, right, I had to talk, the first one I had to talk to the, to the recruiter. That was about 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Then I talked to the hiring manager. That was about 30 minutes, like a week later or so. Then I had to talk to a two-person, kind of like a screening team, almost like two gatekeepers. I had to talk to uh, a screening team. Then I had to talk to a four-person committee. Then I had to talk to the hiring manager's colleague. I had to talk to the hiring manager's boss. So like the person I will be reporting to, I had to talk to their boss. 
And then I had to talk to the hiring manager again. So before I knew it, it was like over a span of like two months, I had seven interviews. And even like the shortest interview was like 10 minutes. The very final one was just kind of like a check-in 10 minute type of deal. But even then, it was like a roller coaster of like, oh, I think they're interested in me. Maybe they're not interested in me. Oh, I think they are interested in me. No, I gotta go this way and then I gotta go that way. Just too many twists and too many turns and it was a lesson learned that I think anyone in any industry has to learn. There's a, a, a parallel that's in the nonprofit space to other industries when it comes to applying for a job in the nonprofit space. And that parallel is that it's all over the map. It's one of the few things from my study, from my observation, just from my interactions in this particular world that I find to be very, very similar to if you're in government, if you're in a private company, if you were even maybe even starting your own company, believe it or not, right? Some of the ups and downs and hoops and loops that you have to jump through to, to kind of be your own boss or start your own business. But there's a lot of similarities. I know countless people that are in the for-profit space and they can go into a restaurant because they're a cook and they can say, hey, I'm looking to work at this restaurant. They say, okay, uh, what's your specialty? What can you make? And they're working at that restaurant a week later. Conversely, if you're trying to work at a five-star Michelin uh, a restaurant in Paris, you might have to do an entry. You might have to do an exam. They might have to test you. They may have you do a lot more, right? Every industry, every job, just the job sector in general has this. And it's one of the few areas of industries as a whole that I see a lot of similarities. It's just a roller coaster ride when you're in the nonprofit space. You could apply to the local nonprofit in your area and that process is gonna be different than going to the other local nonprofit in your area. They're all just so different. Do you know what the pay is gonna be or do you not know what the pay is gonna be? Do you need a resume and a cover letter or just a resume? Do you need a resume and a cover letter and you need to do like a long entry form? Those are the worst, right? Where you upload your resume and then you upload your cover letter and then they're still like, oh, we need you to put in uh, all of the different jobs you worked at in the past. I've seen this applying for positions like in AmeriCorps, right? I used to be in AmeriCorps, did in C, but you can apply for all types of other jobs in AmeriCorps that aren't just like that one year time. And a lot of times they'll have you put in the resume, you have to put in the last six years of employment. You're gonna see, I think, less and less of that but it's just so different compared to if you go to your local arts nonprofit, they may just say, hey, send us your resume cover letter and three references. Do you have to send the references? Do you need to send in the salary requirements? Is there exam? Is there no exam? Is there an assessment? I've seen some, they like, hey, we want you to do this 15 minute personality assessment. Now you have to kind of put that into your mindset, right? And then sometimes you'll apply for a job and they're like, we need you to do all of it in one sitting. So you got to set aside 35 minutes, which is really, let's be honest, like an hour because you got to get in a mind space. And so you're trying to put in all this information before the, the web page signs out. And you're like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. And then even after you apply, is there a follow-up? Is there no follow-up? When can you expect it? It's just so over the map.
that it can it can be a daunting experience but i've come to discover that in the nonprofit space it's one of the few areas that is so similar to government so similar to private companies um that it's there's just certain parts that are really good of being in a nonprofit world and there's certain parts that aren't really good and i don't have all the answers like i don't really know exactly some of the avenues I think as a whole, society and the industry is just going to change and adjust as it relates to the demands of potential uh, employees. And I follow a lot of interesting recruiters on LinkedIn. It's one of my favorite things to do. Shout out to all the recruiters out there, right? They're, they're doing some really good, good, good pieces of work out there in uh, the year 2023. But I follow a lot of good recruiters and a lot of them share all kinds of wild stories as it relates to people applying to jobs, going through the process, some of the flaws that employees have when they're applying to positions. But oftentimes these recruiters that I'm following, they 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 bash way more on the organizations. Organizations that want you to do resumes and put in the information and want you to come in for a two-hour interview and want you to, to come in to um, do a test run or a probationary period. I remember seeing, ah, I'd, I'd have to find it, a, a story way back when, maybe like a year ago or something like that, of a, a coffee shop in Boston. And it was like, I think it was on Twitter or something like that, of a coffee shop that if you applied to the job, they wanted to give you a probationary period of three days. So you come into the, you would come into this uh, coffee shop and you would work for three days for free to see if you were a good fit. One, that's illegal. That's definitely against the law. But you see this in micro forms and in other other ways where it's like, hey, we want you to come in for two hours, or hey, I remember applying for this job of a, a bank. I think it was. I think it was a it was a credit union in Arizona. I don't maybe it was Desert Financial. I can't remember right offhand. But one of the things is they wanted me to submit like a one to two page submission on a potential like marketing campaign. You see that from time to time. But it's one of those things, right? Depending on how much time I invest in it, that could really separate me from other people applying for this job. If you're if it takes you two three hours. And you don't get the job, you feel like you wasted your fucking time. And so I think there's just a lot of avenues of being in this particular world where there's inconsistencies like there is with any industry. And it's just so many ups and downs. It, 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 you could be you could just question how much time do I actually need to spend to potentially get the job? Because it's not just you. I know for a fact, being in on some uh, applications or being in on some interviews, a lot of organizations are disorganized. And so I think there's this feeling among folks applying of, hey, I need to be super organized and have it together. And then the organizations themselves don't have it together. And then it turns out whoever they end up hiring, you think to yourself, huh, were they that much better than me? What made them different? What made them... Uh, so much better of a candidate than I was. And so just like with anything, if you apply uh, for a job at Apple or Samsung, or you apply to cabinets to go, there can just be some aspects of the application process in the nonprofit world that just feel like a roller coaster.
All right, before we go ahead and get out of here, we have our revolving segment uh, that we like to end on with every episode. And we've done uh, rapid fire books. That's been really good. We've done leaders in the industry where we talk about a key person uh, at some high levels that are doing some really amazing things. Might do some revamping of that. We'll see. But one of the things that we really are getting some good traction with uh, is the horror stories. Uh, I call it the nonprofit horror story segment. <laughs> and this is a horror story that this is probably the second or third one I received from someone. So I reached out to some people in my, in my life that I know they're in the nonprofit space. I said, hey, do you have any horror stories from your time of being in a nonprofit world? I'm not going to lie, I've been surprised by how many people have reached out to me that are willing to share horror stories and, and success stories. So I have some of those too. Um, but this is probably the second or third one I received. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to save this for a little bit later. It's a little bit of a slightly heavier hitting horror story. Uh, but as we kind of get more and more of these, I think this will be a, a regular segment. Try to get in and out. This is a longer one. We, we've got some that... Uh, I think are a little bit shorter. So we're, we're still tinkering, you know, still messing around here in the Nonprofit Insider. So th this is one I received that I thought was uh, really wild. And so it goes, hey, Swim, thanks for reaching out. It's been a while. Great hearing from you. And they go on to say a few more things that you all wouldn't really care about, but they just kind of say, say some nice things in the beginning. And so they go on to say, and I'll just kind of read it through here. Don't use my name on this, but I have a great well, semi-great nonprofit horror story. Back in 2012, after we graduated college, I was living just outside of Denver in Aurora, Aurora, working with a nonprofit doing work in homelessness. I had been with the organization for about 10 months when the tragic shooting happened at the movie theater. It was on a Wednesday and our organization was scheduled to do a small but sizable money raising event that upcoming Saturday. I was distraught about the shooting, but the executive director made the right decision in canceling the event. Now, mind you, the organization as a whole was not that big. I think we had roughly 15 people on staff, so that's important to know. One of the staff members even went to grade school, I believe, with one of the victims, so it was a hard time for the community, not just in our nonprofit. Fast forward a few weeks later, and we decided to postpone the event indefinitely. Without getting into too many details, we had to provide some of the money back to a few individuals and groups who paid for sponsorship tables, but many of our vendors completely understood the situation, so the organization was able to get most, if not all, of its money back from various vendors. But we also weren't able to raise any money, uh, despite a few, and she goes on to say, despite a few uh, individuals deciding to just go ahead and donate the money, even though the event didn't happen. She continues by saying, here's the horror part. I'm in our office break room one day, and the lead fundraiser of the event is spilling her guts about how unhappy she was that the organization lost out on what might have been thirty or $40,000. I wasn't in the finance department, and I was pretty new to the organization, so I'm not sure of the exact amount but she was pissed that she was not able to pull in the cash or get a bonus from what we lost. Because let's remember, and she puts this part in all caps, 
12 people died and 50-something people were shot. It was honestly so surreal to hear what I thought. Okay, It was honestly so surreal to hear what I thought was a smart, intelligent, kind person be mad that they might miss out on a few thousand dollars from their pocket due to a tragedy of this scale. It honestly floored me. The executive director was kind and gave us lots of time to process what many of us in Aurora were experiencing, grief, pain, and sorrow. But this fundraiser, by all accounts, simply felt they were missing out on some money and maybe a little bit of recognition. It was strange and an, it, it, it was strange and an experience that will forever forever stay with me and how not to react in moments of fear, confusion, or general crisis. Anyway, hope that helps. Let me know if you put this on your podcast, G. Uh, I can tell you I'm definitely putting this on a podcast <laughs> um, because that is absolutely a, a crazy and honestly wild story. And I love the, I mean, honestly, I mean, you don't love the story, but I love the part where she says it, it was honestly so surreal to hear because that does sound so surreal. It sounds so fictional that you're like, Wait, they were upset that they didn't get a, maybe a, or they wouldn't get a bonus? Just a a really um, wild story. And so actually this person, G, sent this email into me and I actually ended up reaching back out to them because I was like, hey, I have some questions about this. And one of the things I wanted to know was because she said she had been with the organization just about 10 months. And I asked, well, how long had that person been in an organization. She said she believed it was about five or six years, but they ended up leaving the organization maybe like six months later or something like that. And she said she goes on to say like she had a good relationship with her, but it was just one of those moments of not getting empathy, not getting of a person really just not reading the temperature of the room. And I think one of the stereotypes that gets thrown out there with a lot of nonprofit organizations is that it's filled with warm, um, tree-hugging type of people that are willing to uh, pat your back at any time. And it's like, no, nonprofit organizations are like your local retail target store. They're like your local uh, automotive uh, factory, warehouse. They're like any organization. They're like any type of structure where there's just going to be some people that are part of the organization that are a little less than desirable people who maybe have struggles with empathy or have struggles with really seeing what other people are feeling and experiencing and really being out for themselves. I say all the time, there's a lot of money to be made in the nonprofit space. There are a lot of opportunities to advance your career, to make money, to get the glory, Uh, whether you're working at a, a super large nonprofit or really a small nonprofit. But there's just some moments that you really just got to be like, look, it's not about the money. It's not about any of that. It's just about people. So, yeah, absolutely wild story. Thank you, G, for sharing. Uh, Let's go ahead and end it on that. Be sure to leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Insider. And if you have a nonprofit horror story or nonprofit success story you want to tell, you can DM me at The Nonprofit Insider on Instagram, or you can reach out to me at The, and that's T-H-E-E, not the, but The, T-H-E-E, Nonprofit Insider 
uh, at gmail.com. I, I, I actually registered that as a business with Gmail. And now Gmail is like, hey, are you going to put address up? Where are you located? So I got to figure out how to change that from a business account to a personal account. Uh, I think I butchered that there. You know, like I said, still still figuring some things out here at the Nonprofit Insider. So be sure to he- head out to us, reach out to us uh, with your horror stories or success stories, and be sure to leave a review and follow us on Instagram.